Welcome to Game Changers, a podcast about trailblazing West Australian women and their contribution to the wonderful game of soccer. This collection was produced and developed by the Centre for Stories and the State Library of Western Australia. Together, we are sharing stories that reflect our state's rich heritage, diversity and history. The interviews you're about to hear were recorded on Wajak Noongar Buja, and we pay our respects to their elders, traditional custodians and knowledge keepers who are the first storytellers of this place. In the lead-up to Perth hosting some of the games for one of the world's largest sporting tournaments, the FIFA Women's World Cup Australia and New Zealand 2023, we hear stories from local women who rose up against inequality and stereotypes to champion the game of soccer as far back as the 1970s. We hear from elite athletes, past and present, considered to be the best in the game, both locally and globally. And we hear from the community role models who are courageously making soccer more accessible and equitable for future generations of women, young girls and newcomers of all genders to the game. Sports media journalist Chris Morano sat down and heard why self-belief, sacrifice and strength is what it takes to become champions of soccer. In today's episode, Chris talks to fellow sports journalist Anne Adong, who travels with the National Matildas team and works as the digital content project manager for Football Federation Australia. Anne's story begins when her family were forced to flee Uganda as refugees. They resettled in Perth, Western Australia. Growing up in a new country, Anne found the best way to connect with other kids was through a shared passion for playing soccer. Enjoy. Can you tell me about your earliest childhood memories? Yeah, my earliest childhood memories are actually probably not so positive. Um, We had a civil war in Uganda. Um, I'm from northern Uganda in Gulu. Um, I'm a Choli woman uh, from Gulu. And so the Ugandan civil war was what um, we were fleeing. So it's one of those things where you're not too sure if it's an actual memory or if it's just flashes of something when you were so young. But I do actually remember just, you know, um, and, and confirmed it with my mum is like, you know, there's a little bit of violence and um, in the early memories. But my first memories of coming to Australia, I remember the flight. I remember how my ears popped and hurt because that was the first time I'd been on a plane. I remember landing in Perth and it being so hot, like so hot um, and thinking, oh, my goodness. Um, And then my first years were really about finding where we fit in. Um, We landed in and were put in an apartment in Highgate and then not long after my parents actually moved us out of that um, sort of like resettlement housing and moved us into suburbia, um, which was really different because I think my earliest memories was recognizing that I was different, recognizing our family was different because in the streets and the suburbs we lived in, we were the only African black families there. So I just remember that um, 
but feeling different, but then wanting really, really quickly to find a way to fit in. And so for that was sport. I'm, I was good at sport. I was athletic. My family is athletic. And that was, I think, the way, quickest way to be able to find my way into, into Australia and to start to feel a lot more Australian and start to feel a lot more part of this, this new country that we were in. Yeah, you mentioned that one of your introductions was driving your brothers around to sport to begin with. Well, to begin with, it was actually mum driving the brothers around. And I remember used to go to their football matches and um, training sessions. We were at Linwood. That was Linwood Junior Soccer Club from the time the boys were six years old. Um, And I have two brothers. One is five years younger than me and the other is 10 years younger than me. So I just remember Francis, that was, we used to, like I'd sit in the car and mum would drive us to Francis's games on the weekend. And, um, you know, my mum worked really, really hard during the week. She worked as a cleaner. Um, that was the only job she could get when she came to Australia, even though she was highly educated. She had a degree in agriculture. She was lecturing in Uganda, but when she came to Australia, she had three children. Um, there was no job, no money. And it was about how do you make a living as fast as possible? So, she would clean during the week and then she would take us to um, my brother's games on the weekends. And I remember now that I look back on it, I think that was like the freest my mum was, was during those games. And I saw another side of her because she was always quite serious during the week because there was just so much going on. But on weekends was when she actually like let loose and I laugh and think that's actually probably where I get my white line fever from is my mum because that was just what she was on the weekends. And that's how we found, you know, a community and a family was um, those those families. And we still keep in touch with them. I just remember, like, we didn't have a lot of money. And so what I played was netball because it was like that was the cheaper option for us as girls. So my sister and I both played netball. But I used to remember I just wanted to play football so badly. Um, but it wasn't until 16 that I could actually I had my own job. So then I was paying for what I wanted to do. And that was the first time I joined Linwood Junior Soccer Club, even though um, it wasn't the junior side of it that I joined. What was it about football that you felt so captivated by? I just felt captivated by the freedom. Like in netball, you can only go so many spaces. Like you you literally are boxed into, you know, if you're a goalkeeper, you can only go up to like one third of the court. Um, you know, if you're a goal defender, you can only go up to two thirds of the court. Um, and I just like the whole idea of that, the whole pitch, you can use the whole pitch and you can be so expressive and you didn't have to stop after, you know, two or three steps. What was the first year like with Linwood? How did they welcome you in? What were some of the feelings associated with that time? I was so great, to be honest. I think uh, Leah Coppins was um, my brother's long-term coach and he was actually the one that said, do you want to play? And that was the first time that somebody had given me permission to play the game. And I was like, 
Yeah, like I, I do. Like even after I dreamed of it, like for a long time, it just still didn't actually feel attainable. So when he asked me, do you want to play? It was such a simple question, but it was just, honestly, I look back at it now and those couple of words just opened up the whole world to me in a way I could never have imagined sitting here now and just saying yes and the permission to say yes to to that invitation. Um, I remember the first training session, I remember Penny Tanner was there um, and Penny brought me in and she taught me how to kick a ball. Like I'd, I'd been kicking around with my brothers in the backyard and, you know, doing it on my own, but she, you know, she taught me how to strike a ball and she taught me about goalkeeping and I became a goalkeeper. Um, and for those first couple of seasons, I was uh, a goalkeeper and it was just a different sense of community. Um, I feel like with, while my brother had that football experience and I kind of looked at it and I, I did like enjoy netball but I just never felt like I was part of the team in netball. I was wanted on people's teams um, but I never felt part of their teams. I felt like I was, you know, like almost like an asset but not actually enveloped in the team and football was completely different. Like I wasn't an asset. Like I could, I could just strike a ball. I didn't know how to dive. Um, you know, I had all that raw stuff, but I, I was still made to feel part of a team even though I wasn't the best player or I wasn't, you know, the best contributor, but it didn't matter. Like that's what I remember. And I remember, you know, players like Linda Salmon and they just, they'd been playing for years, but they just still were like, all right, coming in. And it was just such a great first season and such a great time. I mean, on that pitch, for those training sessions, I didn't have to be somebody's surrogate mother or I didn't have to be somebody's sister. I didn't have to be, you know, the school representative or, you know, captain of, um, you know, the athletics team. I didn't have to be anybody other than me. And there were so few spaces in my life where I didn't have responsibility to bear and that, that was just great that nothing was expected of me, just to be a good teammate and to play the game and to have fun. And that was the only expectation. While I think in the rest of my life, it was there was a lot of expectation about how I should act, how I should comport myself, what I should be doing. You know, I can't remember how many times I would hear if I didn't have a good test of like at school, because again, academics. I would hear from my teachers, I expected better of you. And it's like, but why did you expect better of me? Why Why is it me you expect better of? Um, and I feel like on the football pitch, it was so great because there was zero expectation from anybody. And if I mucked up, I mucked up. Like there wasn't that shame or that, you know, ad admonishment of why didn't you do better? It was more like you did the best you could and that was okay. So how did that start to extend outside of soccer, off the pitch, within school? Um, you went to Sydney for university. I went to Perth, then I moved to Sydney. I think what it did was, again, it opened up my world in a way that I hadn't before. And it also allowed me to go after things that, you know, 
weren't considered uh, traditional, like, women's stuff. I think, I know, I grew up in a very, like, sort of really traditional household. Um, there were really traditional um, depictions of women and expectations of women. Um, you know, African culture is really conservative. Um, and because I grew up in sort of all of that, I, I had very defined roles and very defined understandings of what women could do. Um, and I feel like football like opened it up in a way of like, oh, I can do X and it's okay. Like I can choose my own path. And I think for a really long time I was like, oh, you know, I will, you know, probably go to uni, do something like teaching or nursing. Not that there's anything wrong with that at all, um, but it was just like those are the defined roles that you do as a woman. And I, for the first time, I kind of like just did what I wanted and I didn't care and that was really liberating, frightening as hell, really frightening, but still also liberating. And I can just do my own thing and I think that's how it, then translated into academics. It was like, okay, I'm just going to do what I want. Um, and what I wanted was law and what I wanted was journalism. And so then, you know, I had my own car um, to drive the siblings around, but then I utilised that car and used that freedom to then start match reporting and, and doing that and not really caring about whether it was the right thing to do, but I just loved it and I was going to do it. What was that frightening feeling? That frightening feeling was, am I going to disappoint my family? Am I going to disappoint my mum? Because she had given up so much to allow us to succeed or to give us the foundations to succeed, and I never wanted to disappoint her. Um, so that frightening feeling was, am I doing the thing that's going to make her proud um, because I never wanted to do the thing that would make her cry. Like the world had made her cry in so many different ways, not physically, but like just metaphorically, the world had made her cry in so many different ways. And I never wanted to be the, the daughter that also added to that sorrow. So that was that brightening feeling of like, am I doing the right thing? And how do I balance what I want with also how to not disappoint her? And so as you started making decisions, did you find that the confidence just kept coming more and more? Yeah, absolutely. But I think also I was able to better articulate what I wanted to do. And I think finding that purpose really early on um, made decision-making so much easier. Uh, I remember I didn't define it, I guess, properly until I was in my 30s but I feel like that it was still always like a really key part I just wanted to be a good person and I wanted people to think I was a good person and I wanted people to think I was somebody who was helpful and I found that in football when I saw that there was a gap in how um, the gender inequity in in the coverage and the gender inequity in treatment it was like well okay this is where I can do good this is a space I can make a difference. 
Um, there are other spaces like, you know, I wanted to be a doctor and then I very quickly found out I really am bad with blood or anything like gory. So, okay, well, that one's out. Um, and then that's one of the reasons I chose law as well. Um, and then sport was then the other way. And, and very quickly I found that there was an opportunity to do good and to make change and I could do it in something that I actually really loved and I had an affinity for. So on that note, let's talk about the women's game. How did the women's yeah. game start and, and what motivated you to start it? The women's game started where, honestly, it was one winter's night and I was researching for the World Football Program and I just spent another frustrating couple of hours trying to find information on um, the state leagues around Australia. Um, I was still struggling to find information about the Matildas to be able to, because um, I just recently met Tom Samani and found out, hey, we have a women's national team and they're called the Matildas. And I met Tom through Penny and Tom Samani is the head coach. And I wanted to cover them more on the World Football Program. And I was like, I, I just, I found it really hard, even after the 2007 World Cup, I found it incredibly difficult to keep finding information on the team. And I just had this really, like, old, I still got it, actually, um, white MacBook. And and I know this is going to sound a bit strange, but it was, like, at the time when um, uh, it was just, like, the early days of of, like, the internet really pushing out. And I think... YouTube was only a couple of years on, but I jumped onto YouTube. But I was like, how do you build a website? Um, and then I found uh, Joomla, which was, I don't even know if it's still around, but it was very much like, it was very similar to WordPress. And I watched a couple of tutorials on YouTube and then I just was like, all right, I'm just going to start building it. And it took me about a week and a half to build it. And then not long after Football Australia or FFA announced that they were going to have a women's league. And I was like, oh, great. Okay. Now I've actually got a really, like, it's, it's got a function, um, uh, apart from more than the state leagues. And then around that time, also, we started to have Twitter, um, and Facebook was starting to become bigger as well. So from there, I was just like, okay, great. And I just remember. I remember the first season of W League. I've still, oh my God, it's so bad actually. The media guide I created, I'm just like, <laughs> I've still got it. The first media guide and I just like, I emailed all the media managers. Um, it's funny because some of them are now my friends and some of them are still in the industry. Yeah, I remember just emailing all of them and just saying, hey, I just want to do this. And um, that's that's how it started. And just, yeah, every, I was still in uni. Uh, I was in my third year of law school um, and I was working, I was doing two days a week at uni and then doing three weeks, days a week at Mallison's, uh, Stephen Jakes, which is which is now King and Wood Mallison's. Um, and so I would kind of finish um, at five, then go home and I would write until like, eight, nine, ten o'clock at night, I'd write the stories. I would organize the interviews to happen in my lunchtime. So I would like sit there with like a tape recorder 
um, with the laptop and just record the interviews or I would spend lunchtime formulating the questions and emailing it off to the media managers and then, you know, I'd get the answers back and I'd just sit and write. And then um, Mac had a, oh, still got a program called Pages um, and that's what I'd use to do the designing of the media guides. Um, and, yeah, and that's that's basically just how I did that for four years and just did it over and over and over again and met people and learnt more about the game and learnt, started to learn about the history of the game and the women involved. And what is it about you or your skills that allowed you to just keep going through that time? Because there's passion and there's talent, but then there's, then there's hard work. I mean, so many athletes say it. You know, you can have talent, but yeah, that's that's just one part of the equation. Um, it's definitely my mum. Like my mum has such an incredible work ethic, like like phenomenal work work ethic. And I also grew up in a family where education and learning was a really big part of growing up. Um, we used to have I don't know if you had them in Canada, but we used to have people who would like travel and sell you like Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> and so like my parents bought a whole set. It's still in their house. Like it's still in the house because this was pre like computers. And so like my parents bought a whole like Encyclopedia Britannica. And I used to remember I used to just sit there and read and read and read about all sorts of stuff. So I think I'm, and mum always says it as well. Like I've always just been a reader and had a thirst for learning and wanting to learn new things. And so it just never occurred to me that I couldn't do something. I couldn't go and learn how to do something. Um, and it was like, well, okay, if I can't do it this way, which is HTML and coding and all of that, okay, well, I'll do it that way, but what's the other way I can try and find out how to do this? And I think that's that's the first part. And then the next part is like because of that whole concept of learning, I think my parents never, in particular my mum, never ascribed shame to us around asking for help. So I never felt shame about like not but saying, I don't know how to do something. Can you teach me? It was always a, like, it was almost a strength of like, yeah, I don't know how to do it. But if you show me, I will learn how to do it. And I will also like teach the next person how to do it. Yeah. And I feel like vulnerability actually helps in many ways. Um, I think vulnerability and, and like, it makes people, feel better about themselves and they're more likely to to teach you or to support you. Again, it's something I didn't know um, previously, but I, I ended up one day reading, you know, the great Mal- Mel- Nelson Mandela quote about, you know, fear, you know, um, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is feeling fear and doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of how I just kind of live it is just going to try it anyway. So it's 15 years this year of the women's game. Congratulations. That's huge. What the women's game has produced and created even from a, a media perspective when there was nothing like it existing. Are you happy with where it has gone? Yes, but to be honest, 
WordPress, I'm not so much happy with it, it, it as a website. I'm happy with what it has allowed to join the conversation. I'm happy with what it's facilitated. I'm really happy that there are so many people who started contributing to the women's game, came along um, to volunteer their time and helped increase the amount of coverage for women's football to the point where mainstream media couldn't ignore it anymore and they had to start covering. I'm happy that for a group of those people now, they're in mainstream jobs like Sam Lewis and Liana Baratti and Anna Harrington and Marissa Lordanik and, um, you know, Angela Batchich. I'm happy that their time in the women's game now means they've got full-time jobs in the careers that they absolutely love and adore. I'm happy that it gave others a hobby that they really enjoy um, and it gives them, you know, time out from their lives and something that they feel bigger than part of, like Cheryl Downs, who now is editor of Beyond 90, or Lockie France, who is a statistician, or, you know, Michael Aliasic, who's a graphic designer. Um, I'm happy that it's facilitated all of those experiences um, for people and that more than you know, the nuts and bolts and the words and the photos and the imagery, that more than anything is what makes me feel so incredibly happy um, and so incredibly proud and that there's a new generation coming through who were inspired by what the women's game did. I always said about the women's game was like, one day I don't want it to exist because it means other people are doing the job we wanted them to do. You know, the mainstream media are covering the game in the way we wanted it to. And it's okay that it doesn't exist. It's the same with my job is like one day I don't want to be in my job because it means somebody else is has taken it on and can do it much better than I do, which means the women's, you know, the Matildas and the young Matildas are in a better place because that person is providing much better service and coverage. I know where I am and I know what the game has given me and what I've put back into the game. And I'm totally confident if the next person that comes and does it better, I'm like, I will cheer them all the way through. And so it's really important to create that next generation's opportunity. Well, and it, and you're doing that with the Women's World Cup legacy programming. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about the program? Yeah, the um, our game, Women and Non-Binary Persons in Media Program, and that is around leveraging the Women's World Cup in the moment that we have to be able to create experiences and opportunities for the next generation of women and, and be um, persons in media. So um, there are two streams. There's the comms and digital media stream, and then there's the photography stream, and each of them have five intake uh, participants Um, and it's around giving them opportunities, giving them access to media events, giving them access to sporting events, helping them build their portfolio, connecting them with mentors, connecting them with industry experts so that they can hear their experiences um, and just building a network of support so that they don't feel so alone because for a long time I did feel quite alone you know for a long time I sat in my bedroom and typed out those things and just kept doing it because I was by myself but eventually when I moved to Sydney and met more people who were doing the same thing I was it felt less lonely and secondly it also meant I could do so much more because 
there were all of us pulling in the same direction. And so I would like this generation not to have to try and find it by accident, but have a really um, strong program that helps them facilitate and develop that. And the girls are doing amazing on the pitch, but it's also the infrastructure around off the pitch that's also important. Mm -hmm. Um, That's media, but that's also coaching. That's also refereeing. I mean, part of my role is to work really hard to also elevate um, the coaches because if you have more female coaches, it, it creates a better environment for the girl, women and girls who are coming through and that's only positive. That's what's really important is that it normalises women in public life and women in public spaces and we don't have to be apologetic about it and I think that gives innate, innate permission. Um, you know, I was really really touched last night when I got a message from somebody um, who I kind of work alongside um, um, around the Matildas and he messaged me and said, you know, his daughters were so excited to watch the Disney doco and see like a black woman on their screens um, involved in, in the game and that's whether, you know, it is a woman of colour or uh, a female coach, a female referee, a female physio, a doctor, um, a female team manager, you know, w- whatever that role is, when little girls see that, they go, oh, okay, yeah, I can do this. I can actually do this. It was really touching. I'd love to talk about the Matildas um, because I guess as a fellow media person, definitely in a dream job, media person and someone who loves football, you're in a dream job. Can you take us back to the first year when you started and what it was like? Yeah, it was actually a little bit by accident. Uh, I was working in Football Australia's digital content team and uh, the 2020 Olympic qualifiers were happening and I was working on Matilda's content. And then um, the media manager at the time was unable to go into the camp because they they were looking after another tournament. Um, and they asked if I could take on the acting role. Um, and I did, uh, again, absolutely terrified, had no idea, no idea. Um, I have seen media managers for, you know, the last 10, 12 years, but actually knowing what the role is, um, no idea. Um, but again, that whole idea of like, just take it on. I literally Googled media managers, roles and responsibilities. I watched uh youtube videos i i looked at media managers in other sports like i just did as much research as i could and then um and then i winged it and i was also that whole idea of being up front i was also up front with the team manager you know i remember saying to Vito, like i'm taking this role on um Vito, i'm gonna make mistakes um but i promise i'll only make that mistake once and i won't do it again um but you know, I'm going to love this team and I'm just going to keep trying and working as hard as possible. So I've always been really open and honest about, you know, my capability and and just keep learning, keep growing. Like I said, Vito, the team manager, um, just one of the most amazing people ever, uh, made me feel so welcome. And I think I just pretty much stuck to him for the first camp. I was like, 
just gotta stick to you. I'm just <laughs> sitting near you. I'm just gonna do all that. Um, and I think also the other part too was I just I just watched. I didn't say a lot that first camp. I did my job, did my role, and then just watched. And I learned so much just by sitting and being quiet and watching what was going on around me. We see them play or we might see them through the social media, but what is it like for you to be there with them, basically observing and being part of their personal lives? I would imagine there's a lot of friendship building. Like, I mean, I'm really lucky. A lot of these players, I've known them since they were young, since they were, you know, 14 and went into the Junior Matildas the first time. I think it's two things. It's being caring and also uh, being respectful. So the relationships I have with players are the relationships they allow me to have. Everybody is different. Everybody has a different cadence. Uh, and just being there in, in the role and the space and the way that people need you, but also understanding they've got football is just one small part of their lives. It's just one part of their existence and it's one part of who they are and so many of them are fun and quirky and um you know and then there are other times where like it's incredibly physically demanding and they're tired and they're you know irritable and you never take that personally because that's being human and um I think it also helps that yeah like having known so many of them for so long um and just they're humans to me and that's the one thing I always try and remind the public is they're footballers for those 90 minutes and they're humans for the rest of their existence and we just need to keep remembering that yeah and you and I talked about this in an earlier conversation um you know is this through media and through reporting that there could be more of a focus on players as people, yeah. especially like, you know, moving through COVID the last couple of years and all the, you know, societal things that are coming up in terms of well-being that we could relate as people and learn from each other. Could you imagine if you, every time you had to do your job, 20 or 30,000 people were watching you and then after would critique how you did your job. I mean, that's that's sometimes how you need to think about it. And then in those moments, thinking about it, how would you react with that? And then how do you then do it with kindness? Um, and again, understanding that humanity behind it. So I think it's that idea of just remembering this is someone's daughter, this is someone's sister, nowadays this is somebody's mother um and and how would it be if it was turned onto you and so I think as much as possible we try and humanize them so that the public can humanize them as well and what about you as a person what would you say this role with the Matildas has given you in your life oh wow um everything like in, it's given me a sense of purpose. Um, it's given me an understanding of 
who I am in situations of high pressure, in situations of low pressure. Um, it's given me some lifelong friends, um, but it's also kept me separate in many ways. Um, it can be a bit lonely. Um, you're traveling a lot and sometimes I'll come home and things have changed around my family or my siblings or people have had experiences that um, I've not been a part of because I've been away for so long. So it's given all of those those pieces, but I guess it's also given the opportunity to live history. I, I think it's really rare that you get to be in historic moments and be involved and part of historic moments and that is something that I just don't take for granted even like you know that feeling of saying I was there or that feeling of being able to sit down sit back and go yeah I helped make that happen um that's a really intoxicating feeling and I think my key thing is I work really hard to just just remember remember the mission all the time and being true to that mission and and keeping to those tenants. So I think I try and stay as much as possible out of all of the, you know, the celebrity culture that the world has inhabited and just keep reminding what is the mission? What is what is that end goal? And and knowing your why is fundamental. Um, I always say it to the younger junior Matildas, um, young Matildas cohort, you know, decision-making is really, really easy when you know your why because you stay within those things. Does it meet that? No, then don't do it. It's, it's really simple. But getting to that stage where you know your why, that's the hard part. That's the soul-searching. That's the being truly and utterly honest with yourself, getting true and utter honesty from your family and friends. Um, and that's, that's, that's all stripping work. And you've got to be okay to be able to handle that, but utilize that feedback and, and find your why. And then honestly, every single decision is so much easier after that. As we look ahead to the Women's World Cup, and you would have been working on it, for years has this moment in time feeling for you given your whole journey in the game it feels surreal it feels incredibly surreal um i think i always knew the women's game would get to this stage i just didn't know how long it would take i honestly thought i might be in my 60s before we get here um and that was always going to be okay because it was like it's the long haul, it's the long, it's the long game. So to have it all happening right now and so quickly, it's surreal, but it's also it's like being in a kaleidoscope where everything keeps shifting before you really can see what the picture in front of you looks like. And I've actually made the conscious decision of not making big decisions right now because it's shifting so fast and so quickly that you're making a decision based on where things were five minutes ago. Um, and so at the moment, I'm just decided to sit in it, to sit in the moment to do the things, but not to make big decisions because 
it's going to take a little while until we turn that kaleidoscope properly and we can see the picture that's going to be in front of us for the next little while. What do you think the the women's game needs more of? I think the women's game needs more selflessness. Um, I think one of the things that has always frustrated me is that we haven't pulled together in the same direction. Um, Because of those different motivations, you often come against people who won't make a decision for the greater good. And that's what I mean by a decision is unpopular and you might not be liked, but it's the decision that's actually the best thing for the game. And I sometimes found that in Western Australia, things were so ingrained and people had done things the same way for decades that they didn't want to change to be able to do something that would actually make it better for the game in the future and it might cause them some short-term pain. Um, And that's why I feel like women's football needs more selflessness and people saying, yeah, that's not going to be popular for me right now, but what that will do for the game in 10 years' time um, that's going to be make it. That's going to make it worth it, even though I'm not going to have that instant gratification. So that's what I'd like to see more. And therefore, we make decisions that are about increasing participation, about making the game more accessible to women and girls in coaching and in, in administration. And you know what? That's going to mean that some. Men are not going to be as involved in the game. And again, that's where the selflessness needs to come into. Oh, that's okay because it's going to open up the game in a completely new and totally different way. Like there are lots of things that I could do in my role and just do it myself. Or I could say yes to that opportunity and give it to myself. Like uh, that's the reality. I'm in a role where I'm a gatekeeper in a lot of ways and I can gatekeep people out. But what's that going to do? Like, what, what's that? Who's that going to help apart from me? But what does that do? So I think it's those opportunities where, you know, there's a paid coaching course that you could go on. But you know what? There's a female coach who's working in the under 11s or the under 12s. And you know that if she got that position in that free paid coaching course, it means that she can coach you know, those two teams or move up a grade or whatever it is. And then you you give her that opportunity. I think it's those spaces where we could feed ourselves, but like let's actually feed others because it's going to have a much greater um, impact in the future. Once you've reached, once you've reached that, that area, make sure you drop down the ladder so others can climb up with you. What is your advice for... For younger girls, or even or even women that could be in their thirties or forties coming into the game now, I'm thinking about playing for the first time. Um, my advice is be okay with failure, because failure is where you'll learn the most. Failure is where you learn most about yourself. Uh, you learn most about what you need to do next. Um, and failure inherently is not a bad thing. Um, and it doesn't make you lesser than. Um, I failed multiple times. I failed spectacularly multiple times. But 
it's like, okay, well, what did I learn from it and got one from that? So don't have a sense of shame about it. It's like, I did it. Sorry, it didn't work. All right, next time I'm going to, I need to do X, Y, Z. So that's, that's my thing is just do the thing, even if you're scared, even if you're probably going to fail, but that's okay. Like, I think one of the things that I try and do in terms of um, people coming up is you've seen it. How many times do male coaches get appointed to jobs? Like Steve Bruce has just been appointed to another job. Like how many teams have gone down under him or have like been relegated or he's been fired or he's been sacked from that role and yet he's still got another coaching job? And like I'm, I was just looking, you know, Steve Bruce, two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, thirteen clubs he's managed. So there is a culture where we allow men to fail and we still give them another opportunity. But when a woman fails, that's the only chance she gets until she prove herself again by starting at the bottom and working all the way up. So I'm I want to have change that culture of like if somebody failed in quotation marks is how do we give them an op- another opportunity to actually show and demonstrate that they've, they've learned from that um, piece. I think it's also really important to have a good support system around you. Um, one of my best friends um, I met through football, but oftentimes I will ask him, I'll be like, Joe, I, I need you to be honest. What do you think about X? And he's really honest with me. And I don't take that as a criticism. I don't take that as an attack. I don't take that as anything, but he wants me to grow and he wants me to be successful. So I think having a really strong support system around you who's who can actually be really honest with you as well. And again, this is something I also try and say to people is take yourself out of the equation. Think of yourself as hovering over yourself and what you've done and then assess it from that way. It's what I also say to like some some of the the younger, you know, coaches or some of the younger kids is when you're evaluating, don't use the you, the I, all of those kind of possessive words. You look at it in terms of the third person and the task. And that means you can get more out of it because you're not associating your self-worth to the activity that you just performed. Again, this is the whole idea of like, what's your core tenant? My core tenant is be a good person. So if I stuff up a task, that task doesn't stop me from being a good person. So why am I going to like castigate myself over it? Now, if I did something that was went against being a good person, that's a different conversation. Mm. That's, a, that's a harder conversation to have of why did I make that decision when I know that that's not what that's not who I am. Um, in an earlier conversation, you mentioned that your brothers grew up recognizing the value of women as you know strong and independent. What does it mean to be a woman today? So I'm wondering if you can just share your thoughts on that with us. I think to be a woman today means to travel through a world where you are judged and you are scrutinized and you are given 
messages of what is right and what is wrong consistently. And today's women find a way beyond that. I think that's what I've noticed is that the strongest women I know, you know, they get whispered about, but they just keep doing it anyway because ultimately they they want to be they want they want to make their their part of the world what they can influence better allowing and giving yourself permission to succeed and to be unapologetic about it and it's not arrogance it's not cockiness it's none of that it's about understanding your self-worth and being okay with succeeding Find your people, um, male or female or non-binary. Uh, find your people and um, take strength from them. Uh, you're going to, it, It's a symbiotic relationship with them, but they're going to be the ones that take you through some of the hard times and they're the ones who are going to bring you down to earth if you're starting to be a little bit more cocky. Um, and I think it's really incredibly important to find your people who's your support network um, and be a good person. Thank you so much, Anne. No worries, Chris. Thank you for listening. This podcast was produced by the Centre for Stories. It was developed in conjunction with and funded by the State Library of Western Australia. Our organisations believe in storytelling as a way to build more inclusive communities. Head to slwa.wa.gov.au to listen to the rest of this oral history collection. Or... Head to centreforstories.com to learn more about our storytelling services and mission. Special thanks to our production team, script editor and executive producer, Louisa Mitchell, that's me, producer and interviewer, Chris Morano, and audio engineer, Mason Velios. Thank you.